my theory on that is everything that we've done in college athletics has always been equal. Your scholarship is equal. They get equal Austin, Austin money. They get equal uh, cost of attendance. Uh, they get equal academic support. They get equal medical attention. Everything has always been equal. Uh, the thing that I fear is at some point in time, they're just going to say we're going to have to pay players. If we start paying players, we're going to have to eliminate sports. Right? And this is this is all bad for college sports. I mean, we probably have 450 people on scholarship at Alabama, whether they're women's tennis players, women's softball players, golfers, you know, baseball players, non-revenue sports. That have for years and years and years been able to create a better life for themselves because they've been able to get scholarships and participate in college athletics. That's what college athletics is supposed to be. It's tough and people blame the NCAA. But in defense of the NCAA, we are where we are because of the litigation that the NCAA gets, like the transfer board. Every time somebody wanted to transfer, they'd apply for a waiver. If you didn't give them, the NCAA didn't give them a waiver so they could be immediately eligible, they filed suit. So the NCAA would back off and give them a waiver. So if the NCAA doesn't get some protection for litigation, whether we got to get an antitrust or whatever it is, from a federal government standpoint, this is not going to change because they cannot enforce their rules. Nobody did anything about it. I mean, these guys at Miami that are going to play basketball there for $400,000, it's in the newspaper. The guy tells you how he's doing it. But the NCAA can't enforce their rules because it's not against the law. And that's an issue. That's a problem. And, and unless we get something that protects them from litigation, I don't know what we're going to do. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the third-party podcast directories. And I have a blog that you can check out if you want to. I haven't written in that in a while, but I think there's some good stuff there. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. If you'd like to reach out to me, uh, please feel free to shoot me an email. You can uh, do that at rich at cagerredux.com, R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right, today is May 19th, 2022, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this kerfuffle or brouhaha or good old uh, SEC pissing contest between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. It's been ESPNized in a way that makes it difficult to really talk intelligently about its true import. And so I'm going to take Saban's comments and just go through them and point out what I think really is important and then some overarching themes and context for his comments that I think is important right now in this crisis in the regulation of college sports, the voluntary regulation of college sports, which I talked about in that last episode. And as is nearly always the case, the sports media and the mainstream media have missed, I think, the most important messages that came out of this episode. And they're doing what they want to do. They're going with the clickbait and they're following the shiny object and Saban knew exactly what he was doing. Saban's running circles around Fisher, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But uh, Fisher's response was just classic. I mean, that is a rant that the sports media is going to get mileage out of between now and October 8th when the two teams meet in Tuscaloosa for a game that no doubt will have off-the-charts ratings. So really, there was no way for the sports media to screw this one up. This was a no-brainer. 
and I'm sure it has sold a lot of advertising and all these articles. You're going to see more. I mean, this isn't going to go away. It's going to come up again and again and again, and it'll die down, I guess, after the game for a while until we get a new spit and match. But I want to say a couple of things up front here about the context. I don't think Nick Saban is worried one wit about what Jimbo Fisher's doing at Texas A&M. Saban, as is always the case, is four or five steps ahead of the rest of the crowd in college football. And I think that his comments served several purposes, but I'm going to talk about them in a way that really hasn't been discussed in the mainstream media. Actually, there were a few good articles. I thought Andy Staples' article in The Athletic was really good. and He took Saban's speech and broke it down and made some, I think, really insightful observations about some of the ironies in Saban's commentary and then some of the the gaps in the tape. And I'm going to use that format. I'm going to use Saban's speech, but I'm going to focus on things that Staples didn't. And I think that one of the things that came out of the discussion on the backside of this uh, pissing contest is that the sports media has a, I think, an okay understanding of the basic issues that are impacting the regulation of college sports right now, but it's not very nuanced. And those nuances are very important now as the Power Five are setting up their campaign and their strategy for their re-engagement with Congress. And I think as uh, Saban made clear, that's where he thinks this ought to head. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as well. And uh, Saban is very good at trolling the media and he knows how to press the right buttons to get a reaction from the the media and, and then his competitors out in the SEC and the Big Ten, I guess, too. But this was a this was an in the family fight, although Texas A&M's a distant cousin because they were brought in during the last phases of conference realignment. And I think that there's always been a little bit of tension there and Texas A&M is trying to prove that it belongs. And I think Fisher has a bit of an inferiority complex and some of his comments were just comical, really. I'm, I'm sure that there were other coaches and athletics directors just laughing as they watch that. They probably all do a pretty good Jimbo, but he's entertaining. You got to give him that. He is entertaining. But let's face it, there's a reason that Nick Saban's going to go down in history as one of the greatest uh, football coaches in the history of the game at any level. And one of them is that he thinks strategically about the game, and, and it is a business. And football, more than any other sport, requires, I think, some CEO-like capabilities because you're managing a massive operation with so many moving parts that you can't be hands-on. It's much, much different than basketball, say, where the coach is managing rosters between 13, 15 players, and the the head coach is directly connected to every aspect of the team development, and, and he has his finger on all the moving parts. The big-time football coach has to delegate, has to trust the people below him, and has to be very good at making managerial decisions. And I think that Saban, he's a very, very smart guy, and he could be successful in any number of fields because he has that ability, he has that talent, and he has developed that skill skill set. And that has really, I think, separated him from his competitors. I, I think Kirby Smart, I think, took that away from him when he, he coached for, for Saban. And it, it, some of the pressers around the national championship game, Smart was talking about the development of the Georgia program in, in that kind of tactical, strategic, managerial way. And I, I think that has served Georgia very well. I, I don't know how 
Al Fisher views his role as the head coach. He obviously is pretty good at getting talent, and he was good at that at Florida State. So a lot of this brouhaha about Texas A&M buying players, and who knows what's going on there. And the NCAA and the Power Five have it within their power to find out if they want to, but I don't think they're going to, as I discussed in the last episode. So Fisher, he's bringing in talent, and it remains to be seen what he does with it. We'll see. But I think Nick Saban's not losing any sleep or looking in the the rearview mirror because he will make whatever adjustments are necessary to uh, keep his program at the top of the heap. And he's a lot like Coach K in that regard. And although they speak, I think, a bit of a different language, Saban and Coach K have been brilliant at adapting to the changes in the game, which is why they're going to go in the record books as two of the greatest college coaches in the history of college sports. Coach K, I think, has his rhetoric, I think, matches the progressiveness of his adaptation. What we're hearing from Saban is a little bit different than that. He's speaking out of both sides of his mouth and he's saying, yeah, this nil thing's okay, but we got all kinds of problems here and it's bad for college sports and we need Congress to step in and all that stuff. And I'll talk more about that. But there's no question that these two legendary coaches have been successful in large part because of their ability to think strategically and more importantly, their ability to, to adapt. And, and Saban's already done that. One of the first things I'm going to talk about is how Alabama and Auburn, to a lesser extent, have influenced what the rules are in the state of Alabama. Again, Saban's so good at creating a, a false illusion without outright misleading you. He's brilliant at that. And he, he did that. I think, by suggesting that the rules that Texas is operating under are less restrictive than the rules that Alabama is operating under. And I must say Alabama, I mean the state of Alabama. That's just not true at all. That came up at the very beginning of Saban's comments. So I think what I'm going to do is just go through his comments and focus on the areas that I think are are really important. I'm going to resist the temptation to jump into what uh, some other commentators have talked about. There were some good articles in ESPN. There were some, you know, great articles in The Athletic. I think the sports writers are actually having a lot of fun with this and are writing pretty good stuff. But I think they're missing some of the most important narratives that are embedded in what Saban had to say that I think really should inform us about what the future of college sports looks like. And Saban and, and Coach K is like this too. They, they they throw in these nuggets that are buried in, in what they're saying that are really, I think, the gold in, in the message. And just as an example, Saban's been talking about the transfer rules and and then the name, image, and likeness market. But the, at a surface level, he seems critical of, of those components of the new marketplace, even though he has already adapted to use those to new features of the market to keep himself at the top of the market. But when you listen to what he actually said, and this goes back to some of his comments in that presser just before the national championship game and some other interviews that he had given, he referred to the transfer market as a quote-unquote fad. And what he meant by that is, look, the, the market forces are going to work themselves out. We don't know what it's going to look like. And if kids are jumping into the portal thinking that that they're going to go from a group of five school to a top power five school, and they, they really 
have gotten some bad advice or they have overvalued themselves, then they're not going to land where they want to land and they may wind up without a scholarship. The market corrects for that. And is that unfortunate? Yeah, but I mean, that's part of market adjustment and letting the, the forces that really should be operating in this market work their magic. And by the same token, if you have coaches who are not treating their players well and you have uh, players fleeing certain programs, what are the market forces there t- telling the market? It's saying to that coach and to that university and to the decision makers there, they got a problem there they need to be attentive to. And I think that that is a net benefit both to the players uh, if they get uh, a coach to change his relationship with the players or do they just get a new coach? And also from the institutional standpoint, because those problems reveal themselves quickly and without a, a big scandal. So those are beneficial parts of the market. Nobody's talking about that. Nick Saban understands that. And he has said that in very subtle ways. And Nick Saban also knows that because of the program he's built, the platform he provides for his athletes, and he referenced the $1.7 billion that Alabama players who he coached are, are making in professional sports. And he, he was selling the program and recruiting. He's always recruiting. These guys are always recruiting. But when it comes to the, the transfer portal, Nick Saban's not going to be hurt by players leaving Alabama in mass, unless it's a player who they recruited and they had high expectations. It wasn't working out. And the, the kids He's not going to get the exposure he thought he's going to get because he's not going to get the playing time and he goes to another school. Great. I mean, I think that Coach Saban would be the first person to say that that's a good thing, both for the athlete and probably for the program. So again, that's a market force and the, the free ability to transfer without having to sit out for a year makes the, the market more efficient and getting the talent where it needs to go. And he's also said, and this is really important, he said, there are 85 scholarship athletes on a football team. You can't keep 85 scholarship athletes happy. And I ran some numbers and looked at the total number of football players that were in the transfer portal and then ran that across the FBS schools. And I think that you have an average of 15 players per roster moving around in in, in the transfer portal. And that number is going to decrease over time. But what that tells me, and I, I guess Coach Saban would probably agree with this, is that on any roster of 85 players, you're going to have at least 15 players who are unhappy, particularly at the high-level programs where they came in thinking that they were going to be the the cream of the crop, that they were going to get a lot of playing time, and that they were going to be able to use that platform to make a living playing football. And if it doesn't work out, yeah, so you got unhappy kids, and you don't want unhappy kids on your roster. And the unhappy kids don't want to be on your roster. So it works itself out. So I, I think that there's a lot of market movement that's a good thing for the sport and a good thing for the coaches. And Nick Saban's such a such an incredible coach and he's got an incredible staff and he takes care of his players and he cares about his players. The same is true for Kirby Smart. Those two coaches aren't going to lay awake at night worrying if Jimbo Fisher's going to pick off one of their star prospects through the transfer portal. I just don't think that's going to happen. And uh, similarly, I don't know how worried they are about Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M interests going into the high school market and, quote unquote, buying players, which is what Saban accused them of doing. (laughs) Then the other thing that Saban said about the, the name, image and likeness market moving away from the transfer portal issues was that that market has some features that will help sort the market out. And he said, and this was very subtle, this didn't get any coverage at all because they were focusing on the bling and the accusations and Texas A&M and Jacksonville State are buying players. And, and I, I doubt very seriously that Saban just said that off the cuff. He later tried to walk that back, but not really. <laughs> I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what the 
immediate effect would be. And he knew that Jimbo Fisher would get all puffed up like a blowfish and just go on a rant, which is precisely what he did. But if you look at what uh, Saban was actually saying about name, image, and likeness, he, he was making the case, a similar case that he did with the transfer market, that there will be market forces that will bring some sanity into this. And as in any market that has been irrationally suppressed and unnaturally suppressed, like this name, image, and likeness market, or the overall college football market. This happened after Board of Regents. You had uh, the NCAA monopolizing the televised football market, and they were rationing the products that were allowed to uh, appear on TV, the teams that were allowed to appear on TV. And they were restricting output, basically. And, and the markets can't function the way they're supposed to function when you have that kind of suppression. It took nearly 30 years for big-time college football to really evolve into an efficient, free market economy. It's rocking along now, and it's being influenced by market forces, not by external regulatory forces, except with respect to this fixed cost of labor, which they're still digging their heels in about. But when you're just looking at the product as a product, it is based on open market competition between the five Power Five conferences. Now, you know, under the NCAA umbrella, they have suppressed the interests of the group of five. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that because I think Saban conveniently leaps over that aspect of the competitive advantages, carefully calibrated competitive advantage that the power five have over the group of five or any other contenders in the football market. And I talked about that in the last episode. And that's not something Saban wants to talk about. And that came through decades of bullying the NCAA around and suing it under anti trust laws, as uh, the big-time football interested in, in border regions. And now they basically are doing whatever the hell they want to do in the context of the voluntary regulation of college sports. But it's these pesky external regulatory threats like antitrust laws and federal lawsuits and state laws and states' rights and all, all these things. It's just a, a comical set of, of irony here when you got somebody from the state of Alabama, the bosom of states' rights in the United States of America, making the case for big federal government intervention to bail out little old Alabama. But in terms of the actual consequence market wide with nil and, and how it will fit into the business of big time college sports, and in this case, big time college football, I think Saban understands that this market will will react to failures in the market. So you had this you know kind of wild west post board of regents football market that took thirty years to reorganize itself into what is now the Power Five and the CFP. You're having the same thing happening right now with this former suppressed name, image, and likeness market. We're only 10 months in, and, and it's going to take a long time for it to work itself out. But part of working itself out is bringing some sanity into the market. And right now, there is no sanity because everybody is so high on that released energy, uh, that suppressed energy, that everybody thinks that this is just going to, the market's just going to go up and up and up and up. I think what Saban was saying it, it, very subtly was, look, 
you're going to have some nil deals here that go south on the people who are funding them. So all these boosters in the collectives who think that they are elevating their status in the marketplace because they're buying players for one of the Power Five schools, that's going to be a short-lived success because you're going to invest in kids that just don't pan out. That's the nature of the market. And when you're trying to price the market before that athlete has taken the field, you're in a high-risk, high-speculation market. And Saban said that. He's talking about Bryce Young, and he said, well, Young's had a great year, and he's going to get some good nil opportunities. What Saban didn't say is that he had those opportunities beforehand, <laughs> and Bryce Young just competed consistent with those expectations. He exceeded those expectations. So he is a good example of an athlete that has current name, image, and likeness value. But if you're putting a bunch of money, you're putting a million bucks, two million bucks, or the, there was this rumor about the $8 million deal. We still don't know what the terms of that deal are. But if these collectives are putting that kind of money into high school kids, and then the high school kid comes in and turns out to be a complete bust, what do you do? I don't know. Depends on what's in the contract. And I don't know if there are performance criteria. I don't think there could be. And yeah, they have to make sure these they, they paper these contracts up to make them look like they're complying with all the the paper restrictions under NCAA rules and policies and guidance. But what if it doesn't work out and this collective winds up eating uh, a few million bucks on a kid that doesn't pan out? Well, th what's the response to that going to be? The response is going to be uh, a much more careful assessment of your risk and probably a lot less money going into that inducement market. But again, nobody's talking about how market forces will, will influence the development of the, the nil game and the nil market. But Saban was, is thinking about it that way. And he knows that the uncertainties inherent in the recruiting process and trying to project a kid from uh, high school to the highest levels of college football. It's very, very difficult to do. I mean, there are, you, you have some can't miss prospects, I guess, but even some of those can't miss prospects turn out to miss by a mile. And, and then what do you do? So I think, uh, you know, Saban alluded to that, but that didn't get a whole lot of attention. All right, so let me just go through these comments. And Saban starts out, he says, the issue and the problem with name, image, and likeness is coaches trying to create an advantage for themselves. They went out and said, okay, how can we use this to our advantage? They created what's called a collective, all right? Collective is an outside marketing agent that's not tied to the university, that's funded by alumni from the university. And they give this collective millions of dollars and that marketing agency then funnels it to the players, all right? Then the coach actually knows how much money is in the collective, so he knows how much money he can promise every player. So we, we got to stop right there. There's a lot to uh, to talk about in just that opening comment and it just shows you how skilled Saban is as a uh, messenger I was going to say propagandist but as a messenger and the way he sets this up he does it in a really smart way by creating an us versus them mentality so he says they went out and said they created who are they they are the other coaches every other coach except for Nick Saban so <laughs> These corrupt coaches created this corrupt collective and they're funneling money from alumni to these athletes and they furnished 
the money to the players and everybody knows how much is in that collective and they all know how much to offer these athletes and it's all this big dark underworld scheme these collectives are and I, I just want to point out a couple of things to, to, to bring those comments back into the realm of reality. Because one of, the, one of the other things that Saban implies is that somehow the rules that apply in Texas or in Florida, because he, he singled out Fisher and Deion Sanders, Jacksonville State and Texas A&M, as uh, just buying athletes through these collectives. But the suggestion there was that Alabama was somehow operating under a different set of rules and was at, at a competitive disadvantage in the way that it approached its relationship to the new nil marketplace. And nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I would argue in terms of the regulatory environment in the state of Alabama versus the state of Texas versus the state of Florida, that Alabama has the competitive advantage because they're operating under the least restrictive nil guidelines that are in the marketplace. Nobody's paying attention to them, but they have at least put the regulatory model in the least restrictive nil space. How did they do that? By repealing their name, image, and likeness law. And I talked a little bit about this in the last episode. I want to go into it in a little more detail here to speak to the, the import uh, of that legislative move. And then also to talk more broadly about how easy it is to move legislators and uh, elected officials and governors. And this is at the state level where these state legislators in these SEC states, this is true in the Big Ten, I think, in football, the football cultures in those two conferences, it's, it's, it is part of the social fabric and the broader societal fabric in those states. And there is a complete marriage of the big-time football products and the rest of the governance process in the legislative level, at the executive branch level, at the judicial level, and at nearly every level of government, you have a, a strong loyalty to the football products. And that plays out in terms of how those decision makers respond to the competitive advantage, disadvantage market. And they will do anything in their power to avoid losing a competitive advantage and everything in their power to gain a competitive advantage. So remember with this nil market, it started with the California law in 2019, but that law wasn't going to go into effect until 2023. So it was really a distant hypothetical threat. And the way that the California legislature couched the timing of the bill, it explicitly said in the bill that it wanted to give the, the NCAA plenty of time to do something on its own because the NCAA had been promising to do something on its own, hence the four-year delay. We now know that the NCAA did nothing, and I argue that they never intended to do, to do anything because they thought the federal government was going to come in and basically shut down all these state laws. But then you had Florida coming in in 2020 and trying to jump the shark a little bit, and they had their name, image, and likeness law that was set to go into effect in 2021. I have my own thoughts on that, but I'm not so sure it was just about getting Florida a competitive advantage. I, I think it was also part of a strategy to try to press the protective federal legislation issue in Congress because the, the Power Five, although they were allied with the NCAA in terms of what they wanted from Congress, the Power Five felt like the NCAA was moving too slowly and they really wanted to pick up the pace. And they sent that letter 
there, all Power Five commissioners signed a letter to both chambers of Congress, and that was on May 23rd of 2020. And, the, and they said, look, we agree with everything that, that the NCAA wants to do, but boy, we really want to press the gas on this. And they said, time is of the essence. They said that several times. Time is of the essence. And they knew they had the Senate that they wanted. It was a Republican-controlled Senate. They had their NCAA Power Five-friendly Republican senators doing their bidding for them. And they wanted to get it done while they had that advantage. And we had the election coming up, the 2020 election coming up. And even though at the time, I don't think anybody thought the Republicans were going to lose control of the Senate. I think that the uh, Power Five movers and shakers didn't want to leave anything to chance. And they wanted to close this damn thing out well in advance of the election. And, and, and hindsight says that they were absolutely right. If you look at it from their standpoint, they, they should have been pressing the gas much harder, much earlier. Interestingly, after that Florida law went into effect in, I guess it was June of 2020, and it would become effective July 1st of 2021, you didn't see all the SEC states rushing to get their own nil bill in place, which supports my theory that this was really designed, this Florida bill was part of a strategy to try to press things in, in Congress. But as the NCAA's campaign in Congress began to veer off course, you started seeing schools in the SEC saying, wait a minute, we got a problem here. We need to get something done quickly. So you had some state laws coming together pretty quickly. And uh, Alabama was among those states that was rushing to get their nil law in place to avoid losing a competitive advantage to states like Florida that had a law teed up and ready to go on July 1st. So the effort then was to get ahead of the nil discussion and try to have a law in place that at the very least wouldn't result in a competitive disadvantage to a state that had a name, image, and likeness law that might entice athletes to that state. And Florida was preening with its law when it went into effect. And Rick DeSantis, the, the governor of Florida, was saying, hey, you guys come on to Florida. We're going to get you a bunch of money. And that was BS because that law had all the restrictive guardrails that all these state laws wound up having, including the Alabama. I'm going to talk a little bit more here about in, in a minute. And then you also had several governors issue, issuing emergency executive orders down the stretch here, heading up to, to the July 1st deadline. You had uh, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear issue an executive order. You had Mike DeWine in Ohio. You had Roy Cooper in North Carolina. And in all of those emergency executive orders, they pointed primarily to the fear of the institutions in those three states losing a competitive advantage in the big-time college sports marketplace, which really means the talent acquisition market. And that was a driving force behind all of these state and image and likeness laws. And these executive orders had, quote-unquote, guardrails or restrictions on nil activity that rendered the opportunities available to athletes really minimal. And so in crafting these laws, there was this delicate dance that the states were doing. They wanted to make it appear as if they were offering some meaningful nil benefits to remain competitive in the talent acquisition market, but they didn't want to really offer anything of, of true value that could in any way interfere with the current business model and this carefully calibrated competitive advantage disadvantage 
advantage marketplace that existed uh, for the Power Five under the NCAA umbrella, particularly after this autonomy legislation in, in 2013-2014. But I just want to go back and, and talk about some of the essential features of these laws. And I'm going to do it with the Alabama law because that's the one that I think is relevant in this discussion about Saban's comments. And you have to remember that one of the primary restrictions in this marketplace was that the universities were not going to have any direct or indirect involvement in this marketplace. It was a marketplace that was designed to exist solely between athletes and third parties. And the reason for the non-university involvement provisions is that the closer you get to university involvement, the more any null activity starts to look like pay for play. And that was the big no-no. And then also you had the recruiting inducement issue. But I'm going to go through a a few of of these guardrails, these restrictions to emphasize just how restrictive these uh, state laws really were. So they said, yeah, you can have nil rights and states can't uh, take any action or NCAA can't take any action to interfere with the rights the athletes have under state law. And so they essentially trumped NCAA law. And that's why the NCAA was asking for federal preemption in their engagement with Congress. So if they'd gotten federal preemption, they would have wiped all these state laws off the books and retained their high chair as the sole regulatory authority in college sports. So one of of the first quote-unquote guardrails in these laws is that these contracts had to be commensurate with market value of the student-athlete's name, image, and likeness, whatever the hell that means. I, I don't know how you determine that. And then you have the sin products. They couldn't advertise a sin product like alcohol or controlled substances or anything in the adult entertainment business or any casinos or entities that sponsor or promote gambling activities. And and then we have these broad prohibitions on any connection between nil payments and the athletic performance or attendance at a particular post-secondary educational institution. So no pay for play, no recruiting inducement. And and that's expressed actually several different ways in this Alabama bill. And then another provision that says compensation for the use of a student-athlete's nil may be provided only by a third party not owned or operating under the authority of the student-athlete's university. So that that kind of restates that prior restriction. And then we have a third one that kind of broadens it. So they're trying to cover all their bases here to make damn sure that no nil activity is going to interfere with the no pay-for-play and no recruiting induced limitations of the business model. So this last provision, it says a university and entity supporting or benefiting the uh, university may not compensate or cause compensation to be directed to a student athlete or the family of a student athlete for use of their name, image, or likeness. That broadening phrase or cause compensation to be directed would directly cover all of these nil collectives, no matter how they were disguised. And then there's the this provision that no nil contract can conflict with the terms of a contract the university already has with a third party. And then that they have these draconian disclosure requirements on the athletes, but none on the university. And then there's a, another a standalone provision, section six, that says a student athlete may not receive compensation for use of their nil as an inducement to attend or enroll in or continue attending a, sp- a specific post-secondary educational institution. Again, just they're really hammering that damn thing. So that's now four provisions in this Alabama law that are 
directly related to the no pay for play and no recruiting inducement. And then I want to mention this too, because this is just another dishonest feature of all these nil laws and, and also the bills that were proposed in, in Congress. And that goes to the employee status of the the athletes. And it says, Section 8, nothing in this act or rule of the commission shall affect the employment status of a student athlete with a university. A student athlete shall not be considered an employee of a university based on participation in an intercollegiate sport. Now, what's interesting about that is that that doesn't have any reference to nil. In fact, this provision doesn't have a damn thing to do with nil. This is the state equivalent of some of these provisions in the federal bills that bring in this no employee prohibition by stealth, making it appear as if it's relevant to name, image, and likeness. But this provision, Section 8, doesn't reference name, image, and likeness. It's based on participation in an intercollegiate sport, which is an absolute prohibition on athletes being employees. That has nothing to do with nil, because by the very definition of the nil market in this bill, it can only exist between third parties and the athlete. It cannot exist between the university and the athlete. And the only way there can be an employer-employee relationship is if the university is directly paying the athletes. And since that is impossible by the very terms of this bill, this inclusion of the no employee provision is a stealth prohibition that is a fraud, just like the provisions of the Moran bill, the uh, Wicker bill, and the Shabbat bill. These bills in Congress, these were Republican-sponsored bills, NCAA-friendly, Power 5-friendly bills that are just sneaking in these provisions that would fundamentally and permanently limit athletes' rights that have nothing to do with the stated purpose of the legislation. So this is a very restrictive law. In fact, I, I would argue, I've, I've read the, all these state laws and the executive orders and a lot of the university policies, and this Alabama law is among the most restrictive. And I mentioned this uh, a few episodes ago in its early draft. It had criminal provisions, both for the agents, the boosters, or the third-party nil providers, and also criminal provisions for athletes. Any of those people who violated any term of the law were potentially subject to prosecution. They pulled the, the athletes out, so they couldn't be prosecuted. But, I mean, th this law was not athlete-friendly, although it was presented that way. So uh, this thing was passed in April of 2021. Then uh, two months later, we get the Austin decision, and we also had the, the failure of the NCAA to try to get last-minute preemption protection in those hearings in Senate Commerce in June, June 9th. And, and that was really the key hearing for the NCAA and the Power Five. And then there was that hearing, the athlete-oriented hearing on June 17th, which kind of took some of the wind out of the NCAA sales. And then you had the Austin decision on June 21st. And on the backside of that, you had this ridiculous interim policy that, that I talked a lot about in the last episode in connection with the crumbling regulatory authority of the NCAA and, and really the, the Power Five. But remember that policy when it came out, it was a policy, not a rules change, not a single word of bylaw 12.5 that relates to nil restrictions in the NCAA Division I manual has been changed, not one word. And you had this interim policy that uh, had the basic prohibitions, no pay for play, no inducements, but it explicitly said that this was a, a temporary 
policy, interim by its very definition means temporary. Until, interim until what? Until one of two things would happen, and this was explicitly stated in, in that policy. One, that the NCAA changed its rules and actually made good on its promise to provide rules-based name, image, and likeness benefits available to athletes. They haven't done that. They're not going to do it. And they never intended to do it. The second thing they said, the other condition for the time limit on this policy was federal intervention, that they were expecting a, a federal bailout. And some of the state laws that went into effect, Georgia's law was like this, specifically referenced that, that language from the interim policy. It said, look, this is just a short-term deal here. Don't get used to this because we're not staying here for long because we're going to either get NCAA regulation on this or we're going to get a federal bailout. And then this state law is gone because the preemption that they're going to get through a federal bailout is going to eliminate and nullify, instantly eliminate these laws with the stroke of a pen in Congress. And then because this interim policy was thrown to together literally at the last minute because the NCAA didn't have another plan. They didn't have another play in their playbook. They just dumped all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions and said, you deal with it. You enforce it. We're out of it. We'll see what we can get in Congress. But until we do that, uh, here you go. So (laughs) they just were working on the fly. And the interim policy was so poorly drafted and was so general that it really didn't try to account for all of the unintended consequences that could flow from it. I think they thought, look, we're going to get federal bailout here and we don't need to worry about that. And what has happened is that the market does what markets do when restrictions are lift. They find solutions. And one of the solutions was a workaround because this interim policy doesn't say anything about collectives. And the NCAA, as I discussed in the last episode, doesn't have regulatory authority over third parties. It has no jurisdiction over collectives or boosters or agents or these nil companies. So its only remedy is to bring the hammer down on on the people that they can regulate and try to impute the conduct of these third parties to the member institutions. And that's precisely what they tried to do with this guidance memo that they released on May 9th, just last week. So you have the the NCAA kind of with its finger in the dike on this, thinking that there's going to be a team to come in and and patch it permanently. That's going to be Congress. But they weren't thinking about unintended consequences. And the market has immediately and efficiently and powerfully just run right through that interim policy. And this interim policy directed the institutions and states that had a name, image, and likeness law to comply with those terms. And that was fine. The NCAA wasn't going to come in and say that if you complied with the Alabama law, the Florida law, or the Texas law, that you were in violation of NCAA rules. They weren't going to enforce NCAA rules if there was conflict between those two sets of standards. Then they also said the same with executive orders. And then they said that in the states that did not have a name, image, and likeness law that was in effect or an executive order, that they would be governed by the terms of the interim policy. And the consequence of that was that the the states that had no image image or likeness law and no executive order were at a competitive advantage all of a sudden. (laughs) These states that were behind states like Alabama and Florida and Texas thought that they were going to have to rush their nil bills to try to keep up with those states. All of a sudden, under this interim policy, were better off than those states because the, the interim policy was far less restrictive and had all these massive loopholes. And And then almost instantaneously, the script on this whole nil market and the regulation of it got flipped. And these states that had these these name, image, and likeness laws that looked good on paper but were really very restrictive, they were looking for ways to either liberalize them or completely ditch them. And that's precisely what the state of Florida did and the state of Alabama did. And on February 3rd of 2020, 
2022, just months after this interim policy went into effect, the state of Alabama repealed its name, image, and likeness law, and you didn't read a damn thing about it. There was some coverage in the local media in the state of Alabama, but very, very little national coverage. Imagine that. And that just falls into this category of the propaganda by omission. And if ESPN doesn't talk about it, if The Athletic doesn't talk about it, or Sports Illustrated or Sportico, then it doesn't exist. And this was one of the most consequential events in this whole timeline. These states like Alabama, who were building their state nil laws ostensibly around values designed to protect the integrity of college sports, all of a sudden flushed those values down the memory hole when they thought they were going to lose a competitive advantage by adhering to them. There was nothing stopping the state of Alabama or Nick Saban from saying publicly that they shouldn't repeal that law because that's the way it should be done. This is how the nil market ought to operate, and the state of Alabama is not going to compromise its principles for money. (laughs) What a silly thing. Instead, they got rid of that damn thing. That may have been one of the shortest-lived bills in the history of the Alabama state legislature. That would be an interesting thing to know. And when that bill was repealed, you had uh, statements from both the University of Alabama and then from Auburn. And no doubt, they were leading the push behind the scenes to make this happen. But you had this from the University of Alabama. They said that the that the focus on this repeal was the student-athlete's best interests and that it supports, quote-unquote, appropriate solutions that enhance the opportunities for outcomes. And they went on to say, consistent with this approach, Alabama supports the passage of this bill as a productive next step in the rapidly evolving landscape of name, image, and likeness issues. You didn't hear a word of that from Nick Saban in this dust-up with Jimbo Fisher and his comments. You didn't hear that in a single article that was written on this dust-up. And that is one of the most important features of this entire episode. And that is that Nick Saban and the state of Alabama, who are up there pounding their chest through these comments about their integrity and their honor, and it's they, it's they doing the wrong thing. And they, they is uh, Jimbo Fisher in Texas and Deion Sanders and and Florida, when in fact, Alabama has created the least restrictive uh, regulatory environment of those three states. Texas has a law. I don't think they're paying much attention to it. And Florida didn't repeal their law. They just changed some provisions in it that basically eliminated these restrictions on pay for play and recruiting inducements. They just flushed those down the memory hole. And nobody's talking about that. Florida was carrying the banner for this name, image, and likeness thing. And all of a sudden, they just kind of do this quiet little amendment that turns that law upside down and inside out and makes a mockery of the values it was originally based on. And again, not a word of this in any of the discussion after this little pissing contest between Saban and Fisher. But what's most important to me about that. It's not just the hypocrisy. None of these values that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been using to sell their un-American compensation limits are worth the paper that they're written on because when their gravy train is threatened, they throw those values down the memory hole and not look back. And, and, And Alabama did that. And Nick Saban did that. And the University of Alabama did that. So Nick Saban trying to create this illusion right from the start that he is doing it the right way. Alabama's doing it the right way. The state of Alabama is doing it the right way. It's just, it's comical. So later in the interview, we learn that, guess what? Alabama, in fact, 
has collectives. Here's how Saban talks about his engagement with these collectives. He says, so I told our players, I said, we're going to have a collective, but everybody's going to get the same amount of opportunity from that collective. Now you can go earn however much you want. And I tell the recruits the same thing because our job is not to buy you to come to school here. And I don't know how you're going to manage the locker room. And I don't know how this is going to be a sustainable model because one of you folks are going to give some player that comes to our school a bunch of money to come to our school. I don't know how you sustain a model like that. Wow. That's just, uh, you got to give Saban some kahuna credits there. But it's interesting the way that he phrases it. He's speaking in terms of equality and and equal treatment. And he says, we're going to have a collective, but everybody's going to get the same amount of opportunity from that collective. And he, he knows that the linemen aren't going to make what Bryce Young makes. He knows that. He knows that's how the market works, and he's okay with that. But he wants to create the appearance that the Alabama collectives are doing it the right way. Every school's always doing it the right way. So we're cheating in the right way. So we're doing honorable cheating because it's based on equal treatment and equal opportunity. And you guys can do whatever you want to within the framework of that kind of equal opportunity. But we're doing it the right way, and, and it's not about buying you to come here. You come here for the right reason. And you come here because you buy into the principles and values of this program and blah, blah, blah. But it's just, uh, it's a fascinating way that uh, Saban just weaves that in and does, there's not a whole lot of pushback on that. And no recognition of the tension between his initial framing of the entire discussion and all of his comments. And then this little slip in here, oh yeah, by the way, we have collectives. And nobody asks how that can possibly be if Alabama has a state nil law that prohibits the collectives. <laughs> you don't have anybody talking about the fact that Alabama repealed their nil law. And I think one of the reasons that Saban wanted to stick with the equal treatment thing. And, and I think this is also reflected in his comments on parity. He, he's made some comments about the need for parity in the athletes' benefits and parity across college sports. And he got roundly criticized for that because there's no parity in college sports. It's a silly argument. But as I'm going to explain in a little bit, I think the real purpose there, that he, those comments weren't directed to the consumers of college sports or even the sports media. Those comments are directed to what's happening in this house litigation where the NCAA and the Power Five are going to have to come up with a new pro-competitive justification for their compensation limits. And that's a nil case. And, and I'm going to talk more about that. But the parity argument is going to be, I think, a, a new way for them to express a pro-competitive justification that's not necessarily directed to amateurism and consumer preference. And this out-of-control nil market, I think, creates the impression in a rough, uh, symbolic way that there will be inequities in the system. And that was reflected in the way that Saban and Smart couched their comments in response to questions on transfer and nil just before the national championship game. They spoke in terms of the distance between the haves and the have-nots increasing, and that's a bad thing, which is absurd. But I, I did an episode on that. That was episode 89 on that press conference and those comments. And I said, those comments were not directed to the sports media. Those comments were directed to the court in-house and also to Congress because they want to try to create the impression that the only way 
to solve the problems in college sports is through equity and equality. And they just don't want this gap between the haves and the have-nots to, to increase. And th that's consistent with the way that Saban was trying to talk about the, the nil issue and then all of these benefits that athletes get. And, and he says something here that I think is, is important and, and equally misleading. Saban says, uh, but now in recruiting, we have players in our state that grew up wanting to come to Alabama, that they won't commit to us unless we say we're going to give them what somebody else is going to give them. And my theory on that is everything that we've done in college sports has always been equal. Your scholarship is equal. They get equal Austin money. They get equal cost of attendance. They get equal academic support. They get equal medical attention. Everything has always been equal. First of all, that is an absolutely false statement. They don't get equal treatment. And the Power Five have, have ensured that there can't be equal treatment through autonomy legislation. And all of these benefits that he's talking about here are benefits that are available to the Power Five only through autonomy. And if they provide these benefits, then lower level FBS schools can, but they can't afford to. So they're going broke trying to keep up. This is this carefully calibrated competitive advantage that the Power Five have built for themselves under the NCAA umbrella. And it's this competitive advantage that Nick Saban doesn't want disrupted. And I think that's his motivation when it comes to the competitive advantage disadvantage issue. But let's look at these things. The scholarship is equal. No, it's not. A scholarship at Alabama is w worth about a third of what it, uh, a scholarship is at Stanford. And they get equal Austin money. That's not true at all. They, they can award some, all, or none of the Austin benefits, and there is a wide disparity among the Power 5 schools, and only 22 schools are, have committed to providing the Austin education benefits. And they're not all the same. Some provide modest benefits. There are different standards for receipt of those benefits. There's not, no equality. There's no equal there, coach. And they get equal cost of attendance. That's not true either. It's a different calculation at each school, and schools have played with the formula to, to try to increase that cost of attendance scholarship. But again, that scholarship was the product of years and years of antitrust litigation. It came out of the O'Bannon litigation, and the NCAA adopted it, or the Power Five adopted it through autonomy legislation with the federal judiciary's boot on its throat. They get equal academic support. No, they don't. And the academic support that the Alabama football players isn't within field goal range, pun intended, of what the uh, the players get in terms of academic support at the the lower level Power Five schools. You get equal medical attention. Not true, but, but I think think Saban is putting it that way, again, not for these sports writers, not for the fans, not for the consumers of college sports. Th this argument is really laying foundation for what the NCAA and Power Five are doing in, in the House litigation and then what they're going to be uh, asking for in Congress. And what they're essentially saying here is that there is a competitive balance problem when you get into these massive inequities that can result in an open and free market like name, image, and likeness. And all these other benefits are carefully regulated by the NCAA. And through this autonomy legislation that the Power Five benefits from, exclusively benefits from, and and I think what they're going to be arguing in-house is a new pro-competitive justification because the old one lost this consumer demand that consumers prefer seeing athletes play who, who don't get paid. That argument's dead. And it was, it's been disproven. And a unanimous Supreme Court essentially said that. They have to come up with a new justification for their compensation limits. And I think it's going to be based in part on this competitive balance argument, which really lost some steam in O'Bannon and Austin. And, and the NCAA really stopped arguing it because 
because of the Power Five's dominance and the insurmountable advantages in the competitive advantage-disadvantage market that they have achieved through bullying under the NCAA umbrella. So that argument really d- didn't go very far when you when they were making it in the context of Austin and O'Bannon. But in-house, now with this new nil market and some of the crazy numbers that, that are being thrown out and this name, image, and likeness derangement syndrome that's taken hold among Power Five coaches, athletics directors, uh, conference commissioners, and in the media. I think that that is a a new spin because that goes directly to the inducement issue and the compensation issue. And and remember, in Austin, and people just don't understand this, the court was operating within this really important distinction between benefits that are tied to education and those that aren't. And the the Austin case was whittled down to education benefits, and the court said okay to that, but it, it wasn't called upon to address, and it did not address whether a challenge to pay for play restrictions or inducement restrictions would violate federal antitrust laws. I'm not sure that they would hold that. I talked about that on March 16th in my episode 104 on the new state of amateurism. There was an uh, article in Sportico by Michael McCann, a law professor from New Hampshire, and I think he kind of nailed it on how Austin is being misread and how Sabin's comments reflect either a misunderstanding or refusal to address the truth of Austin. And there's no reason why the NCAA or now the Power Five with their new prerogatives under the the new constitution to write their own infractions and enforcement rules. There's nothing stopping them from coming in and trying to put some guardrails, uh, meaningful guardrails on this nil marketplace. And because those relate to issues that the Supreme Court really hasn't ruled on, they may get deference on on those rules because they go to direct compensation, not to these education-related benefits. So, that's an important distinction, and I think that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have one of two things is going on. Either they truly believe that if they continue to bring the hammer down on on compensation limits, that they're going to wind up getting sued again, or, or they're going to lose a lawsuit, or it's going to mean the end of college sports as we know it. Or the other thing is, and I think this is more likely, honestly, because they have smart lawyers advising them, is that they're getting enormous benefit from the chaos in this market because that's all they have left at the regulatory level is chaos. And the perception of this rudderless ship that's carrying this valuable cargo, college sports, and it's headed into the rocks and we need the Coast Guard to come in and save it. And the Coast Guard is Congress. So I think they're benefiting from that chaos. And and I think that what Sabin is doing here is trying to buttress the reconstituted pro-competitive justification argument that the NCAA is going to have to make in-house. And they're going to use that same argument when they go back to Congress. And that's why he's couching it in terms of equal, 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 because their their arguments in Congress are equity-based. And it's all about gender equity and the Olympic movement, Olympic development and Olympic sports and and all all of that stuff. That's the theme that they think is going to work. And you get really two birds in one one stone with the way that Saban is couching these issues because, you know, you get the advantage of laying that foundation on the litigation front. But then you use similar arguments in, in Congress for protective federal legislation. But they're really tricky arguments. And the problem with the way that Saban laid this out is that, boy, if if there were people out there in in the media who understood Miles Brand's collegiate model and that it it is nothing more than a massive regressive transfer of wealth from black male laborers to downstream and comparatively well-off white beneficiaries, these comments that Saban made would, oh boy, they, they would be viewed as a problem. And I think they 
they are a problem. And, and this is where I, I think sometimes these coaches who are put out there uh, as kind of spokespeople and lobbyists, and Nick Saban is acting as a lobbyist here in some ways. And he is acting as an influencer for the messages that the Power Five, particularly the SEC, want in the public narrative, both for litigation purposes and protective federal legislation. And I'm just not sure that Saban understands the consequence of what he's saying here. And because this narrative isn't in the public consciousness, I think he can get away with it. But, you know, he's got to be thinking about legacy here, too. And playing this this collegiate model game is dangerous stuff, I think. So here's how Saban says it. He says, the thing that I fear is at some point in time, we're just going to say, we're going to have to pay players. If we start paying players, we're going to have to eliminate sports. And that is all bad for college sports. I mean, we probably have, what, 450 people on scholarship at Alabama, whether they're women's tennis players, women's softball players, golfers, baseball players, non-revenue sports, they have for years and years and years been able to create a better life for themselves because they've been able to get scholarships and participate in college athletics. That's what college athletics is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be something where people come and make money and you make a decision about where you go to school based on how much money you're going to make. Oh boy. <laughs> coach, coach, we need to talk. I mean, that message is just so bad and so wrong on so many levels. I don't even know where to begin. I, I guess I'm going to start with the overarching false premise, and that is that there is a zero-sum financial market that operates in college sports, and that if you take money from one part of the system, it necessarily means it's coming out of some other part of the system. And I've talked quite a bit about this and how that is a conceit of the most lucrative athletics programs at the top of the Power Five food chain who do make enough money to pay for the non-revenue sports out of football and men's basketball money. But that's an exception. And it 95% of NCAA institutions across the three divisions pay their athletics budgets in uh, whole or in part from what's called direct institutional support or from the university side, not the athletics department side. So that is just a false argument. And it also includes a couple of other false narratives. One, and this really goes to attacking this zero-sum thinking on the finances in college sports, and that is that even if you indulge the fantasy that the athletics budget should be fully self-sustaining. There are so many parts of that budget that could be pared back that could easily pay for scholarships in, in non-revenue sports. Instead of building a, another $150 million Taj Mahal facility for football, maybe you spend $100 million. And that $50 million will go a long way to paying for athletics scholarships in non-revenue sports. And that ties to another false narrative. And that is this belief that uh, scholarship support constitutes the largest part of athletics budgets. The opposite is true. The spending on scholarships is among one of the smallest slices in the overall expenditure side in the big-time college sports programs. And in fact, when you go and look at these financial databases, Sportico has a really good database. I, I like theirs. It's interactive. But when you compare the amount of money that is spent on all athletic scholarships, not just non-revenue, but football and men's basketball, to the coaching salary expenditures, you see that at many institutions, the institutions are spending 
spending more on coaching salaries than on the total of all athletics scholarships. And you, you, that, that reality doesn't see the light of day in these discussions because it is not a convenient fact. The argument that there simply isn't enough money in the system to both pay the revenue-producing athletes a fair salary and then also fund non-revenue sports and women's sports and Olympic sports uh, is just one of the grand lies of big-time college sports. And these conferences are re-upping their contracts. The Big Ten's about to, to do a new contract with, I guess, ESPN, and people are waiting for the numbers there. And there's been no discussion about where the money that comes in from these contracts with sports betting outfits or data collection outfits like Genius Sports that I've talked so much about. The Sportico writer was saying that those deals could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So if the Big Ten or the SEC does a, a data deal with somebody like Genius and they bring in another 200 million, where the hell is that money going to go? We don't hear anybody talking about that. People are only talking about this fantasy world, this false reality that are built around all of these uh, false premises and, and this belief that athletics budgets have to be fully self-sustaining. They're not looking at the revenue and the increased revenue that's coming in. And it is pouring in. It is literally falling from the sky. It is raining money for the Power Five, particularly the SEC and the Big Ten. And it is only going up and up and up. And if they get into the sports betting business headfirst the way that the uh, NFL and the NBA have, there's no telling what that's going to do to their revenue streams. They are going to explode. And there's been no discussion about where that money's going to go. But Saban's boy, is he in tricky territory buying into that narrative, given the fact that his athletes are overwhelmingly African-American and they underwrite this entire big-time sports marketplace. And he knows that. He knows that. But I just don't know if he's thought through the consequences of this framework that requires, that mandates the massive aggressive transfer of wealth from African-American men to downstream beneficiaries that are overwhelmingly white. It would be interesting to know if at the next press conference, if somebody asked Nick Saban, Coach Saban, how many of your football players qualified for Pell Grants? And remember, that Pell Grant has nothing to do with your athletic ability. It's based on income and a disproportionate number of Pell Grant recipients are people of color because those people are typically at the bottom of the income level in this country. And you have to be pretty poor to qualify for a Pell Grant. And, and that money is very important. And finally, athletes are allowed to, to keep that money. They, the athletics departments used to take that money and offset it against the athletic scholarship. But now they get to, to keep that money. And some of these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have uh, argued that, boy, well, that's a wonderful thing these guys get, as if that is any part of their relationship to the universities as athletes. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with them being poor. And the other question I would ask Saban is, how many of the these, who are these people? Yeah. How many of the women's tennis players at Alabama or the golfers or the women's softball players qualify for Pell Grants? How many of them qualify for Pell Grants? And if he gives you an honest answer, those numbers are going to be eye-popping, by the way. What would you say then, Coach Saban, to this business model that you've just endorsed, where you take money from these black laborers who come from uh, disadvantaged economic backgrounds and who whose talents underwrite, by your own admission, underwrite the entire athletics budget. And you've got one of the most valuable products in all of college sports. And you're saying to these guys, no, we're going to make everything all equal. We want this equal thing working for you. <laughs> so 
You can have these equal things, these little tips. You know, that's what Taylor Branch, the civil rights historian, that's how he characterized the, the things that Sabin was listing, you know, about the things that the athletes get that are all equal, the medical benefits, the cost of attendance, scholarship, and, and all those things that came with autonomy. Taylor Branch said, those are nothing more than tips that a waiter might get. And, and that's, I think, a, a good way to think about it. So Saban's not talking about the true value of these athletes that then go on to make $1.7 billion in NFL salary. They obviously have some value once they graduate from Alabama and then uh, a couple months later they're in the NFL draft. Are they different people? Are they different players? Are they more valuable as athletes? Is their athletic talent more valuable two months after they leave Alabama? I don't think so. So Nick Saban's not talking about that value when they're wearing an Alabama jersey, only when they're wearing an NFL jersey. But Saban wants to basically cap the earning potential of these athletes while they're in college. So everything can be equal, okay? But things aren't equal. When you take revenue from those athletes and then you spend it on downstream beneficiaries who can't pay for themselves and who whose scholarships could very easily be paid for by cutting the garbage that you have in the athletics budget or having the university underwrite the expenses for, for those scholarships because they believe it's consistent with the university's mission. And why is that a bad thing for the university to have to look at the athletics budget and say, well, we have to decide how much we're going to kick in here and how much this really means to us. That's a values decision, and it would force them to actually wrestle at the values level with what they're doing on the athletic side under this self-sustaining athletics budget model. They don't have to even think about it because, look, we just take all this money from the Alabama football players and make everybody downstream fat and happy, all these white people fat and happy, <laughs> and then everything's okay. And Nick Saban is saying that is a good model. With this quote, he's saying that is a good model. Boy, mm. I don't think this is going to wear well. I don't think this kind of rhetoric is going to wear well. And th these are the kinds of things that 30 years from now, people are going to look back at and say, what was Saban thinking here? This was an opportunity for him to come out and stand up for American values, stand up for American freedoms, stand up for his athletes. But by using this bastardized version of Miles Brand's collegiate model, he's throwing his own players under the bus. And then he segues from that into his direct appeal for protective federal legislation. So he is now acting as a, a lobbyist for college sports interests and in the preservation uh, of the status quo, or, or really a restoration of the status quo. And he's talking about, oh, litigation, litigation, litigation. And again, this is where I think Saban's got to be careful because he's out of his element and he's, he's saying stuff that's not true. And not only is it not true, but the truth undercuts the very argument he's making. And again, these are the kinds of statements that he thinks are benefiting the legislative campaign and the litigation campaign. But when, when we look back at this era with the benefit of uh, historical context and hindsight. These are going to be the kinds of appeals that are going to be held up as, boy, what, what was this guy really all about here? But he says this about the transfer rules. So he says, so it's tough and people blame the NCAA. But in defense of the NCAA, we are where we are because of the litigation that the NCAA gets. Like the transfer portal. Every time somebody wanted to transfer, they'd apply for a waiver. If the NCAA didn't give them a waiver so they could become immediately eligible they filed suit so the NCAA would back off and give them a waiver. So they said, we're just going to make a rule where everybody can transfer. That's how that happened. 
So let, let me just deal with that a little bit here. So yes, the NCAA has been sued by athletes who have been denied transfers. But guess what? The NCAA has won those suits. And one of those suits was decided in 2018 in the Seventh Circuit. And it, it was titled Depi versus NCAA. And Depi was an athlete who had been denied a transfer. He challenged that denial under antitrust grounds, and he had filed for that waiver, and it had been denied. So he had exhausted his, his remedies with the NCAA, and the NCAA didn't say, oh, we're going to grant you the waiver. They said, up yours, sue us, which is what he did. And the Seventh Circuit, applying the dicta from the Board of Regents case, summarily dismissed the case, and, and they said the NCAA has the regulatory authority to have this rule and to enforce this rule. And you lose, player, football player. You lose. Go home. No remedy. So this suggestion that, that Saban makes that the NCAA is being bullied under the transfer rules by threats of litigation and, and that it was those kinds of threats that led to them opening up the transfer market. No, they had voluntarily opened that transfer market because they had been under pressure for that ridiculous rule for decades. And it, it wasn't the, the fear of litigation. They were winning the litigation. And that Depi suit was a suit that the NCAA put front and center in its briefing in the Ninth Circuit in Austin and then in the United States Supreme Court in Austin, because the way that that court, the way that the Seventh Circuit looked at the NCAA's regulatory authority in that transfer case was that the NCAA, because of this dicta in Board of Regents, sat on the iron throne of college sports regulation. And if they said that any of their rules related in any way to promoting their principle of amateurism, then those rules were presumptively valid and it's gavel bang next suit. That's what happened in Depi. And in that article, that was in Sportico today, Professor McCann addressed Saban's misinterpretation of the legal issues. He was talking about Austin specifically, but I think this falls into it as well, because I think Professor McCann is correct that if the NCAA, if it had retained its transfer limitations and those limitations were challenged after the Austin case, you know, the Austin case said you know, that Board of Regents dicta is meaningless and, and it was given a proper burial. But even without that argument, that trump card that the NCAA had used for 40 years to have its way in federal courts, even without that trump card, the NCAA just has to establish a, a legitimate, reasonable, pro-competitive justification for the transfer rule. And that rule is completely outside of the scope of the, the context of Austin. It didn't involve education benefits. It didn't involve the possibility of an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services. The transfer rule is an eligibility rule and a restriction that a court might find was defensible under the rule of reason antitrust analysis and wouldn't be struck down. So Saban's just simply not correct about his portrayal there. And it's, it's that kind of fast and loose stuff that you get from coaches when they try to start talking about issues that they know very little about. And I'm not suggesting he should. Some of these are complicated, nuanced legal issues, and his job is to win games. But he's being used here, I think, by the Power Five and, and by the lawyers and the lobbyists to be the pitch man for the lobbying campaign. And when he speaks, people listen, and there's, this is perfect proof of that. This uh, little spat with, with Jimbo 
is a story that just keeps giving. But if you read Saban's quotes there, you are likely to believe, if you don't know better, that he, first of all, he knows what he's talking about, and two, that what he said is true. And he doesn't know what he's talking about, and what he said isn't true. And uh, Coach Saban closes out his appeal for protection from litigation. That's what he, what he calls it. So if the NCAA doesn't get some protection from litigation, whether we get it an antitrust exemption or whatever it is from a federal government standpoint, this is not going to change because they cannot enforce their rules. Uh, he, he starts taking some shots. This is where he goes after Jimbo indirectly and Jackson State and Deion Sanders indirectly. And then he brings in Miami and he's talking about these Miami basketball players getting these $400,000 deals. And again, that's another bad look because he's referring there to Isaiah Wong, African-American or mixed race. I think he identifies as African-American, who is part of this Miami nil gravy train that's being run through some booster. And Isaiah Wong's become the poster boy for everything that's wrong with the nil market because he said he thought he should be getting a better nil deal. And if he didn't get it, he was going to enter the transfer portal. That's how he was portrayed. I think he distanced himself from some comments that that an agent of his said. But uh, Wong, you say Isaiah Wong and people immediately think now that this guy is greedy. He's ungrateful. He's here to take, take, take. And he's the the poster boy for the out of control nil market. What uh, Saban doesn't say, and, and he's t- he talks about that uh, these guys at Miami and they're going to pay a basketball player $400,000. It's in the newspaper. Of course it's in the newspaper. <laughs> Nick, and you're going to keep it in the newspaper with comments like this. But what Saban doesn't acknowledge is that there are some gals there involved. And I'm going to do an episode, I think I'm going to call it the the tale of three nils. And I'm going to compare how Isaiah Wong has been treated in the media as compared to the Cavender twins. These uh, twins, basketball players who just left Fresno State for... Wait for it. Wait for it. Miami, the bright lights and beaches of Miami, where they can make even more money off of their extraordinarily lucrative name, image, and likeness deals. And the the difference in the way that the media has portrayed Isaiah Wong versus the Cavender twins is is shocking, really. But Coach Saban, he he knows where to draw the line there. He's making his arguments for the gender equity crowd. So he can't talk about the fact that the Cavender twins are jumping on that gravy train too. That's not a, a convenient narrative when he's trying to make Isaiah Wong a black basketball player at Miami out to be the Duke of Darkness in the nil market. So Saban closes out this pitch for antitrust immunity by saying, but the NCAA can't enforce their rules because it's not against the law. And what he means, it's not against the law. He means that these collectives are not against the law, the way that this interim policy was structured. And Saban goes on, and that's an issue. That's a problem. And unless we get something that protects them from litigation, I don't know what we're going to do about So Saban is acting as chief lobbyist here, and he's saying it is protective federal legislation or the end of college sports as we know it. Chaos will reign. And it's because the the NCAA hasn't made these collectives against the law, you know, (laughs) and it was that comment, I think, that that prompted Professor McCann to write his story, and he quoted that language and and, and pointed out that there's nothing stopping the NCAA 
from coming in and making that illegal. These aren't laws. These are rules and these are policies and these are guidance. The member institutions can uh, abide by them or not. And, you know, I talked about that in the last episode and and the consent of the governed and the governed are increasingly revoking their consent because they don't think a whole lot of the NCAA infractions and enforcement process. But there's nothing stopping either the NCAA or the Power Five now through this transformation committee and the new powers they have with respect to infractions and enforcement after the constitutional makeover from coming in and putting the brakes on this and saying, no, these collectives are bad news. We are going to prohibit any association between the institutions and these collectives. And we're going to start doing some investigatory work to figure out what these collectives are all about and get what we can from the member institutions. You know, again, they, they don't have any control directly over these collectives because they've been formed as independent organizations, either for profit or as nonprofits. We have nonprofit collectives and they are separate entities that the NCAA doesn't have any direct regulatory authority over, but they uh, could do more than they're doing now. And that is a choice. It is not an immutable feature of the environment, the legal environment right now. And McCann made quite clear that the Austin decision is a limited ruling. And I made that observation on May 16th in that episode I mentioned earlier about the state of amateurism in 2022. And I, I used Brett Kavanaugh's concurring opinion in Austin, the, the one that was viewed as a dagger in the heart of amateurism. And it was portrayed in the media and, and by some legal commentators as being uh, really aggressive and uh, was really a threat to the NCAA's business model. But when you break it down, it really wasn't. And so much of the way that case has been portrayed has been overblown. And it was a very limited ruling on a very limited set of educational benefits that fit very nicely in this distinction that the Ninth Circuit has drawn, which basically prevents athletes from being paid their value out in the free market. So it's not nearly as bad of a ruling in practice as it's been made out to be. And Professor McCann pointed that out out with respect to how Saban has misrepresented what that case actually stands for. And Nick Saban's going to get away with that in part because the people who are covering these kinds of comments don't understand how wrong they are, how fundamentally wrong they are, and why they're wrong. That, that's really what's important here. Because in this comment, it's not just that Saban doesn't know what the Austin ruling really means. It's that he's using that misstatement of what Austin means to justify the NCAA and the Power Five not taking action that it could take tomorrow. And that's a bad message. So uh, I'm going to be keeping an eye on all this propaganda because that's really how I see this. And Sabin is very effective because he understands enough of the big picture issues to be able to finesse his comments, to, to piss off the right people, to get the conversation stirred up, but then uh, include some of these nuggets that promote an overt political and litigation strategy purpose for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. All right, so on to the next saga. Yeah, <laughs> Whatever it may be, these things pop up. And again, I'm trying not to be reactive to all these crazy stories and the nil derangement syndrome. But I thought that there were some really important elements of what Saban had to say that simply didn't get any coverage, but, but were important to point out. And we'll keep an eye on this stuff, okay? All right, so I'm going to close it out. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 